Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. broadcast today is entitled, Which Were Born of God. Today we continue our recent series on sovereign grace statements from the book of John, sovereign grace statements that are found in John's gospel account, coming to, actually, a sovereign grace statement found early in the book of John, the earliest statement that we will have considered up until this point, and the earliest that we will consider together, on the radio in this series, found in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. Let's read that passage together. He came unto his own, he there being Jesus, his own being the Jews, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You might find it interesting that I waited until nearly the end of our series together through the sovereign grace statements of the book of John to consider a remark that we find all the way back in John chapter 1. It might also surprise you to realize that this statement that is used by many to teach that men have a decision in their regeneration is actually a statement of God's sovereignty and salvation when you understand it in connection with the statements that surround it, namely verse 13, that people who receive Christ, people who believe in him, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I have actually intentionally waited to talk about this particular passage until we considered nearly every other statement, sovereign grace statement, from the book of John that I intended to cover in this series. I did this on purpose, and as we will see when we begin to look into verse 12, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. It will be very clear what John's meaning is, understanding what this portion of John does, what it serves to do, in John's Gospel, 
and the sort of themes that are repeated throughout John's Gospel, themes that we have already considered together. To briefly summarize before looking into the context of this passage, as we have done in the other passages we considered in this series, Christ came unto his own, and his own received him not. That statement is simply telling us in verse 11 that Jesus preached to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as it were. Jesus' public ministry was largely directed, as far as the preaching part of his ministry, to Jews. When Jesus went about preaching and healing and doing good, he preached to public audiences of Jews. And sometimes, as we read last week from John chapter 8, portions of them would believe, but more often, especially in Jerusalem, and in particular among the powers that be of Jerusalem, they rejected what Jesus had to say. And so he came unto his own, and as you read in verse 11, his own received him not. He preached unto Jews, but as a nation, his people rejected him. Now, obviously, you read of converts in nearly every passage through these four gospel accounts, and if you read the book of Acts, All of the early believers in Christ were of a Jewish background. So this isn't to say that Jesus came unto Jews and no Jew believed in him, no Jew received him as the Messiah. But in general, this is a general statement. Generally speaking, on average, the nation of Israel rejected him as the Messiah, the prophesied one who throughout all the Old Testament was foretold to come into the world, born of the lineage of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, an offspring of David to sit upon David's throne, a suffering servant that would also be a victorious king, though Jesus and much of his life, including their very actions when they put him to death, were prophesied of in the Old Testament. They were completely blinded to his identity. Now, A remnant of the nation of Israel did believe in him, and that's the word that the Apostle Paul would use many times in his writings to talk about the believers among the nation of Israel. There was a remnant that was obedient to the Word of God. There was a remnant that received the message of Christ, that received him as far as his identity as the Messiah is concerned. But by and large, the nation did not. They would cry out, crucify him, crucify him. They would put him to death, and God would judge that culture. They suffered many judgments after this because of their rejection of him. He came unto his own, his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. Now, one of the most important sentences or statements that you can learn with regards to understanding the Bible is in a sense, or in this sense, or in that sense. Pastors and preachers are to give the sense of the text as we read in the Old Testament. And so, in a sense, people who receive him have been given power or authority to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. But listen to verse 13, and this is our sovereign grace statement for today. Those that received him those that believed on his name, and those are parallels in this passage, they were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but they were born of God, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To say 
that people are born not of their will, not of their flesh, and certainly not blood, their lineage, but they are born of God. That is a sovereign grace statement. That's our sovereign grace statement for today. And so simply put, summarizing this before we look into the context and explain to a greater degree what some of these statements mean, those who received him, the people in the first century that believed in Christ, just like it is today, they did so because they had been born of God. Birth enables belief. Life precedes action. Ability is the result of birth. Anything that we do that is good, including our faith, is a result of being born of the Spirit of God, because prior to the new birth, we are natural men who cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. The gospel is foolishness unto us. We are dead in trespasses and in sins. We are hateful and hating one another, according to Titus chapter 3, before the washing of regeneration. So this birth that, as we read and we'll elaborate on further, is not of blood, the will of the flesh, or the will of man, this birth enables the reception of this information that Christ is the Messiah. And so if you believe in Christ, it's because you have passed from death unto life, as we read from John 5, and you will not come into condemnation. Birth enables belief. Those who were born received him, and in some sense, as we'll explain today, they received authority to become or power to become the sons of God. That word power there, to give you a little bit of a hint in advance, has reference to authority. They have the authority to become the sons of God in some sense. Now, let's back up and consider the context of this statement. This is going to be one of the major points that we make today. What is the intent of this part of the Gospel of John? John chapter 1 is actually what we consider the prologue to the Gospel of John. This means that it's a little piece of the writing that came beforehand, and the themes that will be elaborated on further throughout this epistle are going to be stated clearly at the very beginning. There are major themes in John's Gospel. Sometimes these themes are overlooked and missed by people who take a casual, light reading and gloss over much of the details of this beautiful and important God-inspired gospel account. John 1 is the prologue to John. Now, while John 1 is considered to be the prologue to the gospel of John, the last chapter is considered to be the epilogue to the gospel of John. There are major themes in John's gospel that we would be wise to observe to help us understand his intent, and even at times the meanings of the statements that John makes. Now, as far as the themes of the book of John are concerned, number one, John is concerned with the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first major theme in the Gospel of John, you don't have to get but one verse in to find this major theme, that Jesus is God incarnate. He is God's eternal Son, the Word of God, the Logos, that is made flesh of one essence with the Father, but at the same time, He's also human, as John would depict as Jesus hung upon the cross. Now, don't just take my word for that. Let's go through a few passages from John that are familiar, some that we've already considered so far in this series, and let's observe that. John chapter 1, the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word. That word, word translates from the Greek word logos, which we'll comment on in a moment. 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John would have us to know in the very beginning of his gospel account, in the very prologue of his gospel account, that Jesus is the Word, the Logos. This Word was with God, was God, and was with God. Viewing that statement in the Greek from which our King James Bibles translates, if you're using a King James Bible, it literally says, and God was the Word, and God was the Word. The Greek there is kathios in ologos, kathios and God in ologos was the Word. So there's no doubt that this Logos, this word that is being written off here in John chapter 1 is divine. God was the word. He created all things in verse 3. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Now, tying in First John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, which our hands have handled— we beheld his glory here in John chapter one fourteen. The word was made flesh. The word is God. God is the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word was with God. That's a Trinitarian statement. And the second person of the Godhead, the word, was incarnate as a human being. In John chapter 3, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, as we've already gone through in this series No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Jesus came down from heaven? What is that? That's a statement of his divinity. In John chapter 5, as we emphasized, he and his Father do the same things, and to know one is to know the other. To know the Son is to know the Father. To know the Father is to know the Son. His Father works hitherto, and He works, as you see in John 5, 17. And then the Jews tried to kill Him because He said God was His Father, making Himself what? Equal with God. Co-eternal, co-equal with His Father and with the Holy Ghost. In John chapter 8, emphasizing again the divinity and the deity of Christ, as Jesus speaks about Abraham rejoicing to see his day, the Jews begin to scoff and to say, you're not even 50 years old. How did you see Abraham? How did Abraham see your day? And Jesus simply says, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself. What did Jesus just do? He claimed divinity. It's a major theme in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. When he said that, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. For doing what? Well, for making himself equal with God. They understood for him to say that if he is the Son of God, he is equal with God the Father. By the way, on this point, there are some people in the world who are unsound and unorthodox who believe a heresy denying the eternal sonship of Christ. But notice in John 10, I and my Father are one, and to say he's the Son of God made himself equal with God— Jesus is eternally the Son of the Father. The Father is eternally the Father of the Son. The divinity of Jesus literally hinges on that in Scripture. Sometimes the unsound will say, well, he became the Son of God at his incarnation, but he was something else. We don't know what before time. But no, Jesus is the Son of his Father, and to be the Son of his Father is to be equal with God, to be co-equal with the Father. In John chapter 17, 
Jesus praying to his Father, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also might glorify thee. Glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Again, Jesus was with the Father before the foundation of the world, equal with him, co-eternal, co-equal. Christ is God's eternal Son, the Word of God, made flesh. They are of one essence. The Son is of the same essence and substance as the Father, and they are co-equal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Co-eternal, co-equal. That is sound, fundamental, biblical theology regarding the identity of Christ. And John excels in bringing that to our attention. He opens with it. He repeats it throughout his gospel account. John excels in teaching sound biblical theology about the identity of Christ. But you see, Jesus has another nature. Not only is he divine, he's also human. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. He was born of a virgin named Mary in Bethlehem and placed into a manger as a human being, body, soul, and spirit, who learned to speak, who was nursed as a child, who learned to crawl, who learned to walk, who had to get haircuts and baths, who had to learn the trade that his adopted father, Joseph, had taught him. He was a human in every way. Now, how does John demonstrate that point for us? Interestingly enough, when Jesus was upon the cross, the soldiers came to break his legs, but no bone of Jesus would be broken, according to prophecy. And since he was already dead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and out came blood and water. And John says regarding that, and he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that you might believe. Why would that be an important fact of Jesus' life to bear witness of and to intentionally point out that he knows that it's true? Because you see, one of the earliest heresies that affected the church not only denied Jesus' divinity, his deity, but it also denied his humanity, and that was the heresy, the error of Gnosticism. John would spend a great deal of time combating that in his first epistle. Jesus was divine. He was not some sort of a lesser deity. Jesus was also human in every way except for sin. Jesus was a man because God became a human being. The second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, became a human being to die for human beings upon the cross as our substitutionary Savior. John emphasizes that beautifully, and it is a major theme of John's gospel. The second theme of John's gospel that I want you to understand is the identity of God's real people. What have we studied in this series? We've learned about sovereign grace statements, how a person through God's sovereign will comes to be born of God, how they are saved by God's sovereign grace, by God's choice. Just to rattle off some of these, as we think about the identity of God's real people, one of the major themes of John's gospel— in John chapter 1, what did we just read? That people are born of God, not of blood or the will of man or the will of the flesh, but they're born of God. That's a sovereign grace statement. People are born of him. They are his children because God has quickened them. It wasn't by their will or any other man's will. Regeneration is not decisional. What do we read in John 5? That they've passed from death unto life. Who are the people that pass from death unto life? His children. His children have passed from death unto life. In John chapter 6, we learn of these people, that they have been drawn of God. John 5 and John 6 emphasize that you will not come unto me that you might have life, 
and that no man can come to him except drawn of the Father. In John 8, we read that there were people there who couldn't believe in him because they were of their father, the devil. God is not their father. God has children in this world, but the people Jesus was speaking to when he made that statement, they were not God's children. In John chapter 10, we read of people who were the sheep of Christ, of both a Jewish and a non-Jewish fold, and yet they will all be one fold in Christ. In John 15, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. We learn that these people are not only born of God, they've not only passed from death unto life, they've not only been drawn of him and are his sheep, but they were chosen of him. And as we emphasize from John chapter 17, they were given to the Son by the Father from before the foundation of the world. And they will know him, they will know Christ from the very least of them to the greatest because God is sovereign and salvation is a certainty for them. Now, these two major themes, the identity of Jesus and the identity of God's real people, are introduced here, though commonly overlooked, in the book of John chapter 1 in John's prologue. Now, I've rattled off a lot of passages of Scripture today. John 1, John 3, John 5, John 8, John 10, John 17. Obviously, these are major themes. And so, as such, we should expect to find them in this prologue. Where do we find the identity of Jesus introduced in the prologue to the Gospel of John? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Last week at Flint River on Sunday morning, I spoke at great length on the fact that this word logos is a philosophical term. It was something that ancient Greek philosophers recognized in the universe some sort of divine reason that permeates the universe, and their thoughts on that began to evolve over time, and they were so close to the truth of the matter of this that Justin Martyr wrote that these people, though they were counted as atheists by people who lived among them in their day, they were actually Christians because they knew the Logos, and they lived in accordance with the commandments of the Logos. And he juxtaposed in his first apology those who would persecute the people who obeyed Christ, though in ignorance, and those who lived in accordance with the Word of God, despite being Gentiles, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and ignorant of the oracles of God. So this word word is a philosophical term that Gentiles would have understood. But you know those first three words there in John's Gospel— are words that the Jews would have been familiar with. In the beginning, that invokes an immediate remembrance of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. In the beginning, citing something the Jews would know, was the word citing something Gentiles would know, a Greek philosophical term, and this is absolutely intentional. He's telling Gentile audiences, much like the Apostle Paul did in Athens, that there is a God that you are ignorant of, him declare I unto you. The Logos that you've been looking for and desiring to know more about, this divine reason permeating the universe, is none other than the second person of the Godhead, which was incarnate as the man Christ Jesus. Now, he was in the world, verse 10, and the world was made by him, but the world knew him not. Why? Because light shines through darkness, and darkness comprehends it not. That's a universal principle in the Word of God. Men without grace in their heart reject Christ. They reject God. They reject the Bible. They reject the Word. 
because to understand spiritual things requires spiritual birth, which brings us to this next point that we find in this prologue leading to our sovereign grace statement for today. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. The nation of Israel, except for a remnant, rejected him. But to as many as received him, to them gave he power or authority to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. For people to receive him, they must be born of him. Otherwise, the darkness comprehends not the light. But once a person is born again, they hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they have a knowledge of God by faith in their heart. They yearn for him. There is a difference that is made in them. They are born again, and because of that, they can receive the word. Now, regarding that statement, the new birth is, according to this passage, first of all, not of blood. This means that we're not born of the Spirit of God, and this is our sovereign grace statement for today. We are not born of the Spirit of God because of blood, that is to say, inheritance. If you're born again, it doesn't mean that you're born again because your parents were, even if your parents are. And if you're born again, it doesn't mean that your children will be born again, even though they might be. You are born again because of the will of God, as the wind blows, according to John chapter 3 and verse 8, as we considered earlier in the series. You are not born again of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. According to Galatians 5, the flesh is complete enmity against the things of the Spirit of God. You can go read the list of the lusts of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5 if you want to. Romans chapter 7 is another good passage to consider on the will of the flesh. Your new birth is not by the will of the flesh. In other words, when you were a natural man, you did not will to be born again. And you might think back, well, I remember being convicted of my sin and being ashamed and calling out to God, and I would insist that what happened that caused you to feel that contrition and that awareness of your sin and to call out to God was the new birth. That's why you were calling out to God. You and I are not born again of the will of the flesh. Decisional regeneration violates the principle of this passage. We are not born again according to the will of our flesh, nor of the will of man. Not me, not you, not your parents, not your pastor. I cannot will you into eternal life. Well, if I'm not born again because of my family, and I'm not born again according to my will, and I'm not born again according to the will of any other man, how is it that I'm born again? The answer is simply two words, of God. You are born again of God, and that is an absolute statement of sovereign grace here in the book of John chapter 1. So what then do we make of that statement that as many as received him, they received him because they were born of God, to as many as received him gave he power or authority to become the sons of God. In the first century, you would assume that those who were of Jewish ethnicity were naturally God's sons, but many of them were not. By the end of the first century, the faith had gone to all ethnicities. Understanding that people who receive the message are people who have been born of God and are thereby sons of God, when people receive the word, it manifests that they are sons of God, and so they have authority 
to enter the world stage as God's children. They have authority to become, in our minds and our understanding, the sons of God. And so what that statement is saying is that those who receive the message of Christ, those who believe he's the Messiah and love him and worship him, they do so because they were born of God, and their reception proves that they belong to Christ. The true sons of God are manifestly declared to be such when they receive the preaching of the cross. Or as the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 1, the gospel brings life and immortality to light. We are justified, declared righteous in our consciences by faith, and living by that faith declares us to be God's people in the eyes of those around us. This passage is about declaring who God's real children in the world are, people who receive him because they have been born of him. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write. Let me know that you've received the broadcast and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at MarchToZion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. Address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.